I was in Cracker Barrel, one, my wife and I were in Cracker Barrel one day, and I saw this object lesson that was on sale for half prices. My wife told my wife, I have to have that. That's the one I have right there. And I thought to myself, that best describes what counseling is all about. When people say, you know, well, we expect you to fix us, I says, you're in, a, you're in trouble. Because you're expecting me to do it, it won't work. If Jesus doesn't show up, we're all in trouble. You and I. And in a sense, uh, you, it, that object lesson really says, you know, obviously you say there's something missing. You, I can see what's missing in that, you know. Where's the source of the water? Right? And you realize the fact that, you know, the source of the Spirit of God really is not visible. It's a relationship you have with Christ. And that becomes a basis for you to be able to connect and care for someone else. And um, really, you, I can't even visualize that and tell people, this is what you should see because I can't describe it. It's only when they see Christ in you and you begin to communicate to them that they feel, hey, there, you must have something that's behind you to minister to me. And so um, I find that object lesson basically describes. So I'll leave it run during the time right now. Um, if you think I'm running out of gas, we're going to go back to Jesus, okay? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for each person right here. I pray that you would just minister to us and grant to us wisdom, understanding your perspective of all that you have taught us in your word and how you want to prepare us to understand how to walk with you. Lord Jesus, just uh, draw us together during this time. In Christ's name, amen. And just to introduce myself, uh, I got a call the other day and says, your, your father told me to call you. And I thought to myself, my father's in heaven. Then I realized they were talking about my brother. Um, and so, you know, people expect me to be, you know, under John, which I am. I'm using all his material, at least 99% of it. Some of it I come on my own. And uh, we were pastoring for 35 years, and five years ago, um, uh, we were ready for a change, and we decided we'd go and locate in South Carolina because the office had given, getting calls from the southeast, and so we do a lot of responsive re- referrals from Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, Tennessee, and so that's kind of where we're stuck in that corner of the world. And we praise God for it. We just finished five years serving there, so that's kind of where... I guess we're just trying to learn that after 35 years in the pastorate, sometimes I wish I would have known then what I know now. I could pastor a whole lot different. We're going to talk about pride and rebellion today. Um, it's interesting this morning um, when Bob Branhill was talking about the one sin that kicked Satan out of heaven wasn't even an action. It was a thought in his heart. I will be like the Most High God. And all of Satan's relationship with God turned on that thought. I'll be like God. Pride. Or rebellion. In fact, when I heard Bob say that, I was always think in terms of our actions. It didn't hit me that basically it all started with a thought. And we're going to talk today about Thoughts. Because one of the things I, I say as I work with counselees is, I want you to take ownership of what's happening inside you. Now, you just heard the prayers that we just, that Wayne and Janine went through. I asked them, I says, when you as a spouse hear your wife or your husband, put your name, Lord, I choose to forgive my husband. 
for doing this, causing me to feel this. Or Lord, I choose to forgive my wife. For, and your name is in there. I mean, not just wife. My, you know, your name is there, okay? When you hear your name, what do you feel inside you? And I, I began to ask myself the question. When I heard my wife pray, Lord, I choose to forgive Dell for doing this last night, causing me to feel this. I discovered something happens inside me. I, I loved what, what he said this morning about the kidneys. It usually isn't up here. It's down here somewhere. In fact, I, I want to back what, what Gary Dameron, he sounded like, you know, he didn't know for sure. He said, 45 years ago, I was sitting in a, in a class of Hebrew. I don't know if you know Dr. Walk. He's one of the top scholars in the United States of Hebrew. I spent four, four semesters under him doing Hebrew. And he spent eight weeks going through Psalm 139. And all at once when I heard Gary Dammer says, I'm hearing Dr. Walkie. And he talked about the kidneys. I heard that back 45 years ago. The first time I ever heard again since now, heard Gary. That's not just something that's just kind of come up someone, you know. That's actually some pretty good Hebrew exegesis. Well, you know, when my wife would say, Lord, I choose to forgive Dell, I felt something come up inside me. I didn't like hearing that. Something told me it's not very good to hear that. Here my wife was offering me the best gift there is. Forgiveness, right? In fact, a few years ago for a Christmas letter, I wrote my article, the best Christmas gift you can give someone else was forgiveness. But you know, I didn't even like this box with my name on it. I didn't mean to do it. Why would I get blamed for it today? That's, that's what I was feeling, understand? And I saw something come up inside me. And, and basically, as that came up inside me, I began to realize that is the manifestation of pride. Being defensive when criticized, that's number five on your list. Look in the second page. Feeling sorry for myself because I'm not appreciated, that's number 16. Difficult admitting when I failed someone else, that's number seven. I just realized, I began to identify those feelings I had inside me responding to someone who was offering me a gift, and I wanted him to mark that name off and throw that gift away. Don't give it to me. But really, I needed it, didn't I? But in my pride, I wasn't willing to accept it. And what I'm going to do today with you is, I'm not going to spend the whole hour going through all the things of pride. You can go through John's tapes on pride and rebellion. There's two hours there. I'm not going to cover that. In fact, I'm going to cover it in definitions, and that's all. What I want to do is what I do with my counselees almost every week. In fact, there's every week somewhere I bring it along. In fact, when they come with the bitterness sheets that they filled up overnight, okay, they filled out, had the pain words and who they were going to forgive, I says, by the way, do you like your name in the list where your wife is going to, you're going to pray in a little bit from now? I turn to the husband, do you like your, that she's going to start praying with your name in there a little bit? Are you going to like that? And they got to look at me and says, I'll tell you where that's coming from. And just like I just did with you, that's what I do with my clients. Because I discovered something about pride and rebellion. None of us have the problem. It's always somebody else's problem. But it's such a subtle thing that we don't realize how it creeps inside of us. It's the first sin that kicked Satan out of heaven. It wasn't even an action. It was a thought in his head. He didn't do anything. He hadn't even built his throne next to God that he wanted to. He didn't take over anything. He just said, I want to be like the Most High God, and he was out. 
He brought that same temptation in the garden. And so I'm going to share with you, as I work, I'm going to show you another angle of this whole thing. When you've had a disagreement at night, and you don't work through it, you're still frustrated, the tension is still high, you finally just say, you know, just forget about it, you know, go to sleep. Paul says, be angry but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. I can almost guarantee that the next morning when you wake up, unless you're not like me, I, I think you're, you know, most, a lot of people like me, okay? Next morning, I'll have one of these 18 on my list that I've got to work through. Because for some reason at nighttime, in those eight hours of sleeping, the enemy creeps in with some negative thoughts. And start, you know, we call it getting out of the bed the wrong way. Outside, you know. I'm just calling it more spiritual. Satan has got some damage, you know. He's going he's to attack you and start your day out wrong. Right. Start your day out wrong. His way. And I tell people, in fact, what I'd like to do to finish this, the end, is, you know, something you can start every day with. One little prayer takes 15 seconds to start your day out right. And they begin to work through things. Now, I think one of the things about pride and rebellion, it's not just working through the attitudes of our heart. It's also actions that tell the enemy, we're not going your way. I'm going to go a different way. And so we're going to talk about the prayer and actions as we move through this. The first thing I want you to know is just some definitions. And this is on your sheet. Pride is basically the need to control someone else. Wanting my own way in my relationship with another individual and being focused on myself. I want to control you. Now, it's interesting. I like this definition because for, you, for us who were raised Mennonite or Amish, We've got a lot of correction to do a bunch of whole thing of pride. My mother, who just died a year and a half ago, she admitted in the last 10 years, she said, you know, she said, you know, we were taught not to affirm you because that would develop pride. And I thought to myself, now it's putting together. You know, why affirmation wasn't free and coming. I got my affirmation from my grades, not from my parents. I had a very hard time when I finally got my master's, you know, what I do now. I didn't get more affirmation, report cards. You know, <laughs> I was middle 20s and I was kind of struggling. Report cards, my affirmation. You know, and, and in a sense, it's that struggle. And you say, well, isn't it right when you affirm someone doesn't go through it? Yeah, I know it goes through the head sometimes. You know, we did something with our girls. You know, every birthday was their special day. They got to choose what food they could eat. They got to choose if they want to do their chores or not. They could skip their chores that day. They didn't have to do dishes. It was their day. Interesting how long it took them two weeks to get over that birthday. You understand what I'm saying? The next day says, just a minute, you don't choose your food today. You eat what's on the table. You know, you go back and do your chores. And you see, when you affirm a child or a person, they suddenly think they've done it perfectly, right? No, no, no. That we, we appreciate what you did today, but you're going to have to learn tomorrow. You haven't got there yet. And see, part of affirmation is not saying you've never made any mistakes. Affirmation is you're on the right track. Keep on going. Parents need to do that to a child. It doesn't mean the fact that they're perfect. It means the fact that we're directing them in a positive way with affirmation. We also said you missed the road too. 
Now, pride, basically, if we can say, hey, never affirm them, we damage them another way. Now, I say this because I think it's important to realize some of the very people who say, let's work on not affirming so they won't become proud. Let's understand, help, help people keep real, you know, humble, you know, like almost dragging your chin on the, on the ground. Um, that really isn't humility. That's basically tearing a person down, as it were. And I believe, as I walk through this, understand you can be a child of God walking with your head up and being the most humble person is. And one of my goals today is, what does it mean to teach your children, to teach yourself, teach your spouse, teach your family, to walk humbly with God? It's one of my goals today. And, and you don't do that by dragging your chin on the ground. There's two kinds of pride. In fact, when I first saw John's sheet about 10, 12 years ago, I thought to myself, he doesn't understand pride. See, I marked about half of these things. I knew I'm a humble person. He missed pride totally. But because of his angle of looking at emotional issues, which I hadn't worked through yet, he came through depression. Again, two guys in the same family. I heard his videotapes. I didn't recognize my dad from his videotapes. He's only three years younger than I am. It seemed like it should have been the same dad, but all of us responded differently to our dad and our mom. And it's interesting, he had 20 years of depression. I didn't have 20 years of depression. I had 20 years of building a heat shield around my heart, which my wife couldn't get through for years. It's just a different approach. And the point I'm making is the fact that, you know, when I first saw this, and I saw the obvious pride, I focused on what I can do, I can accomplish I lift myself up. This is the King Nebuchadnezzar kind of pride. Daniel. This is Babylon I have built. Now, I was watching this. I didn't want this to be the kind of pride I had. But I discovered something that through depression, John had discovered an angle of pride, and people would have called him a humble person. In fact, after I pastored for 11 years in a church, the farewell dinner, a whole bunch of people stood up and said how humble I was. I was ready to write my book, Humility, How I Attained It, right? But little did they know what was going on inside me in those 11 years. Because in those 11 years, I began to struggle with things, and they were on the other side, and that was the hidden pride side. That was the thing, you know, I focused on emotional pain. I felt rejected. I feel like nobody loves me. I'm so filled with my pain that I can't see anyone else around me. I can't love. I can't care for others. I'm focusing in because of my pain. It's interesting, you look at this one, I saw, I was preaching one time, I was looking for illustrations, and one is Cain. Remember the one who killed his brother? It's interesting, you never think in terms of Cain as being a proud person, do you? But it's interesting how much of this actually shows me hidden pride. God comes and says, Cain, where's your brother? Remember his first response? Am I my brother's keeper? And number five, being offensive when criticized, I mean, am I responsible for my brother? And then, it's interesting, as soon as God pronounces judgment, Cain comes back, and I think it's verse 5 of chapter 4. He says, my punishment is more than I can bear. You're driving me from the land. Whoever finds me will kill me. Seven times he uses me, my, or I in one verse. I think it's number 14 on there, talking most often about myself and conversing with others. Um, another person of hidden pride is King Saul. You know, King Saul, you know why he was chosen to be king? Why did the people choose him to be king? Don't say it's godliness because there wasn't much of that. Pardon? 
I'm not sure about that. He may have been. There's one characteristic that's said about him. Part, say it. I heard it over there. He was a head taller than everybody else. Who was their enemy? Who was their enemy? Goliath and the Philistines. He wasn't nine feet tall, but it's the best they had to offer. They chose him because of his height. He was this much taller. When they looked to in, in, bring him and be king, they couldn't find him. He was out there ducking behind the baggage. I never figured out what that baggage is. I don't think they had trains in those days. I don't know what the baggage is, okay? Maybe the garbage. I don't know. He was hiding. In other words, he was ducking. They couldn't find him. He should have been standing up. All through his life, basically, he struggled with hidden pride. Now, God sent Samuel to walk alongside him to help him, but he didn't obey all what Samuel told him to do. Now, as we walk through this, I want you to realize the fact that, you know, the enemy is looking for any way to get us. And I discovered in many cases he was getting me the hidden pride way, just angling from the behind through my hurt. Now, we're going we're gonna to kind of look at rebellion, although I'm not going to spend a lot of time on rebellion. I, I see rebellion and pride as the opposite sides of the same coin. Pride is, I'm going to stay in control. Rebellion is, nobody's going to tell me what to do. Do you understand what I'm saying? And in most cases, and I'm just sharing my own experience, I always use pride in my counseling. I always go to that one. Because I, I think enemy is using that one. That's his first foothold he uses. Now, every once in a while, I realize there's a real spirit of rebellion here. They're not listening to me. They're not listening to God. They're not listening to their spouse. There's a block here. And I'll, I'll discover that. But I'm finding most often, if I can get through the pride thing, the rebellion is already taken care of. So I kind of tie this. I'm not trying to eliminate rebellion, but I'm discovering in many cases the pride is where the issue is. Now, granted with pride, basically, it, Samuel said to King Saul, rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. You're going a different direction. Now, I, I want to look at a, a passage and the passage, in fact, I use this almost every week. And the passage comes out of, of um, James chapter 4. And I love James chapter 4 because there it talks about the fact that, you know, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, I picture grace is a huge bin in heaven full of it. I know, I, I'm just kind of weird that way. When I was a child, my dad built a grain elevator. And about when I was eight years old. And so when I was nine, 10, 11, my job was to run that grain elevator in harvest time. And I'd spend hours watching that grain elevator and watching these huge bins on top. They seemed so much smaller now than they did then. And they just fill up. And, you know, the trucks would come under. They'd pull the slide out. And the grain would fill the truck and they'd shut it. I figured, this is how I always pictured this verse. God has a bin in heaven full of grace. He says, if you walk humbly before me, I open that slide up. If you walk in pride, I shut it and lock it down. You don't get any of it. Now, now turn to your spouse if they're sitting next to you. Just, just turn right now. Just look at them, okay? Would you like to have grace for me? I ask my clients this. Would you like to have grace? Oh, yeah. Good. I'll show you how to get it. And then it says, you know, it's interesting. You go to James and begin to realize the fact. In fact, I'm going to just... What is grace? I'm just, I, I just kind of made a very surface definition of grace here. God looked at a person who didn't deserve. We weren't deserving. He reached out. Your spouse is a lot more deserving than we were from God. 
help a helpless person who couldn't help themselves. And last of all, they're willing to pay to set the person free, as we talked about just forgiveness a little bit ago. And I see grace in the fact that basically you reach out to give someone something that they didn't earn, they can't get for themselves, and you pay the whole price for them. That's what Jesus did for us. Now, it's that same kind of spirit of grace that flows in families. And as we walk through this, we begin to realize, I, I put a definition together, humility, and this is my surface definition. Seeing all of life from God's perspective and totally trusting him and obeying him so that his grace flows to you and through you to others. And basically I see pride as where I'm in the center of my world, my feelings, my emotions, my goals, my dreams. Humility is where God's in the center of my emotions, world and all the things that happen, I'm focusing around him. So it's just basically where your focus is. It's a simple way of explaining. And I, I use that in my counseling. I'll just put my fingers as, you know, everything's around you, that's pride. Focus around God, let's figure out what he's doing. Now, as we walk through this, I come to James chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet. You cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. I love reading that quickly. Can you figure out what the problem is? <laughs> it's so jumbled up. There's about six different issues there. They all focus around, I don't get what I want. Even when I pray, I don't get what I want. Okay, it's interesting, just, it's like, I don't get what I want. But it comes from all different angles. Most of the people coming into my office have dealing with some kind of conflict. In fact, almost every time I'll take James, I love James chapter 4. Now, see, John has a different approach to preaching than I did. John goes from Genesis to Revelation. If you follow his material, you'll, you'll hit the whole by all, all 66 books in some cases. I don't preach that way. I look for one passage and says, you know, that's going to teach where we're going. In fact, I told him I can go to this passage right here. I can deal with four of the spiritual issues. It takes you four hours to get through. I can do it in 30 minutes right from one passage right here. Pride, rebellion, temper values, and hypocrisy. It's right in this kind of context. Okay? Now, he, he covers much more thoroughly. But just taking this one passage, you can cover all those issues which cause conflict. You adulterous people. James is the first New Testament book that was written. We're barely out of the gate as the early church. They're still thinking Jewish. Their pastor, who's James, Jesus' half-brother, says, you know, you adulterous people going back to Isaiah, God says, I married you. You took off and found another husband. Spiritual adultery. He says, James says, you know, we got a relationship with Jesus Christ, and you're taking off, and you're forgetting about that. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God? Or do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit he causes to live within us envies intensely? I love that phrase right there. The moment you trusted Christ as Savior, the spirit of God came to live in you. Don't you like that truth? You think he's always happy? Is he happy when the fights are taking place? He's there. What do you think he felt like when you were screaming at your spouse? What do you, felt, what do you feel like when you start hitting and beating each other up? What is the thing the Spirit of God is doing inside you? Basically, he's been looking, he's been envying intensely 
for some room in your heart for his way. I love this ending intensely. That's passion. And then it says, the next verse says this, but he gives more grace. I guess I thought God was a zapper. <laughs> the, enemy, the spirit envies intensely, says, you know, I'm going to take it all away from you. No, no. The spirit envies intensely because he's got a whole bin full of grace to open up. And you're missing it. Now, guys, I'm sharing with you this exactly what I do in my office, okay? Now, sometimes people criticize me. Do God do much preaching? I says, I'm going to get you in the word. And let the word change what's going on in you, okay? And I sit down and say, let's explain what the Bible's talking about here. When you're fighting, the spirit of God is ending or something inside you. We're going to look at that right now. Because he has a whole bin full of grace there, and you're missing the grace of God. First of all, God to you and you to each other. That whole bin full of grace. He says in the next passage, God resists the proud. I use the word opposes the proud. He locks down the proud. In other words, he puts a padlock on and says, you know, you don't get any of it. But then he says, he gives grace to the humble. He opens it up. By the way, which would you like to have? Now, you know that answer, don't you? And I think part of what we want to do is motivate people to say, you know what? It's worth letting the Lord, Spirit of God get inside us to figure out why we're locking down grace. How can we get grace to flow in this relationship? What's causing it to be cut down? The Spirit of God envies intensely. As I look at this, I, be, I believe that he, he wants your focus on the heart of God. He wants to focus on your loyalty. He wants the focus of your heart to be changed. And again, you could just take it almost on any angle. You look at the clients in front of you. What do you think the Spirit of God envies intensely for their heart? What does he want? He wants the best for them. He wants them to enjoy marriage. He wants their families to flourish, for every child to be fulfilled and feel their part. That's what he wants. And he's not willing to settle for one less than the grace flowing from him to you and you to others. See, as I walk through this, I begin to realize the fact that um, when I open the seed, all of life from God's perspective, it opens up. But it's interesting, I came across this passage in James chapter 1. And this is what's important. I don't always rush into the whole aspect of pride because some people are not ready for it. It's interesting, there's reasons why people are proud. In your sheet, I basically recognize part of saying, I don't start the sec first day, it says, you know, we're going to deal with pride right now. It's the first sin that hits you, and it's the first thing we're going to deal with. Because, as we're going to see in just a moment, under point number three, you see, Pride has become a way where I can deal with emotional hurt. And part of our job as counselors and caring is, is figuring out where Satan has got the foothold to make them find pride as being a legitimate answer to their need. And if we haven't gone to find that need, we haven't taken care of the foothold. I like this concept of don't give Satan a foothold, Ephesians chapter 4. 
27, 25, somewhere on there. It's interesting, footholds are basically, it's a picture of, mount, of climbing these straight cliffs, okay? Now they have these, these made-up walls, okay? We're talking about, you know, um, Yosemite, I guess they're shutting that place down, you know, where they're climbing up these cliffs. What are they looking for? They're looking for cracks and crevices to get their hands and their feet in to get going up that side. And I think here's the point I make is this. I want you to understand one thing I've learned in my five years. Rather than hitting toward pride, I want to figure out where are the cracks and crevices the enemy is using to get a foothold to weasel pride in there where they've got to do it their own way and be in control. Where they basically realize, you know, life isn't safe in by myself. I've got to stay in control. And therefore, they're a very controlling person. They've got to be in charge of everything. They blame people. They feel sorry for themselves. It's protecting their hurt. And I've discovered if I'll first go and find the footholds and work through that, I can take away the foothold that the enemy uses and they realize, hey, if I let myself go back then, Satan will get a foothold. Why don't I just go back and take away all those footholds? And Satan doesn't have a chance. And that's what I see under point three. And in fact, when I was working through this, I came to James chapter one. This is the one where it says, consider pure joy and you fail trials of many kinds. Now, this is an interesting passage. The word tempt and test is the same word in the Greek. If you go through it, it's very confusing. Consider pure joy when you face testings of many kind. That's pyrazo. Then later on it says, when you are pyrazoed, don't anyone blame God when you're pyrazoed to evil. It's the same word. But basically, as I look at this word pyrazo, testing, it's an experience God brings into our life that God's going to use to transform us, to make us more like Jesus, and the enemy's looking for a way to get us away. Now look at this verse right here. When tempted, no one should say God is tempting. It's the word pyrazo, same word, okay? Rejoice in testing, it's the same word in the Greek. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. For each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is drawn, dragged away, and enticed. It's looking about needs. And I began to realize that behind all these things we have, there are some basic needs that we think we have to have. I came across another author who had these, all these needs summarized in three. And I, I'm going this way, but I still see John's 18 list. Okay, I'm still going to use the 18 list that you have in front of you. But I looked at this and began to realize you can take all th- those 18 and you can actually summarize it. My need to take control of things. My need to be noticed. My need for superiority. Or maybe someone say significant. I have a hard time with that word. It should be significance, but actually it's more than significance. I want to be in the top of the pile. I want to be most successful, superiority. I, I'm using that word, although maybe someone like that, maybe like a better word, significance. Okay? Now, it's interesting. Those needs we have, the enemy says, I'm going to take advantage of that because I can find some people in your life, in your family, that's going to make that need an obsession. They're not going to affirm you. Or they're not going to, um, they're going to control you. You don't have no control of your life. 
or they're going to make you feel like you can't do anything right. Take that need, and the enemy has a foothold to sneak in. Now, I've really, in fact, I was asking James Wagler about this, and he says he's come with the material tomorrow. Um, John has one sheet he uses. When I came across James Wagler's sheet of damaged relationship, I mean, this was a gold mine. I love this one. In fact, what I have on the sheet right there is half right here, like this. Basically, you don't, nothing of your sin is what other people have done. Here's what you do. In other words, it's interesting to go back to this and basically realize what damage other people do that cause me to become rebellious or proud. People step on us here, makes us feel that way, and we go over here. Now, I had parents, they brought a 14-year-old to me. The mother's sister had gone to John for counseling. They live in Kansas somewhere, and they'd gone to John and really been helped, and so her sister and husband and their family live in South Carolina. says, go to Dell. He'll help you work through your, your son's rebellion and his, um, his anger. And so they come. They only gave me two days. And even then they left the one session early. They only gave me three sessions. Um, the first day, you know, I was listening to the boy, listening to the parents. And they were taking tests. That night I had seven tests to grade. TG, you know, the parents on each other, on themselves, the parents on the son, and the son himself, okay? It was interesting when I got all finished. In fact, I... What I do is I take this sheet right here, I turn to the sun, and I said, tell me, which emotional issues do you feel in this list? And uh, Janine and Wayne just went through them. You know, abandoned, neglected, ignored, in the sense of my needs, humiliated, disowned, betrayed, despised, disrespected, emotionally detached, rejected, emotionally drained. I said, which of these do you feel? Just mark any of you felt like. He marked one word on here. Emotionally drained. Okay, I knew there was more, but... He marked that one word. I turned to him and says, tell me what emotionally drains you. Tell me what's over in this list that emotionally drains you. He marked two words, just almost immediately marked them. He marked anger and critical, judged. I says, uh, can I explain? He did this in about five minutes. I says, so when someone criticizes you in anger, you feel emotionally drained. Is that why you're rebellious and get angry? That's on this side. Yeah. Okay, now we're going to work on this whole thing. Now, they took the tests, and the next day they came back and had all the scores. And the parents came there, and they says, you know what, I, you're, you're, I checked your son's grades on his anger, and it's interesting. His scores are here. Mom and dad's are up here. I mean, they did their t- I didn't make it up. That was their test. They, they took it. I says, you guys are over here. Your parents are over here, and your son is over here. He's half as angry as you are. I said, um, I'm not going to take the responsibility. I, I worked it the other day. I worked, I worked that day with him re- learning to submit to his parents and not being angry, but just a minute. If they, don't, if they keep pushing these buttons, he's going to keep on doing it some more. And the wife turned to the husband and said, remember how you talked to him this morning when we were packing our suitcases? And then she t- he turned back and says, you know, yeah, I remember how you talked to him last night before we went to bed? They were going at each other. So he says, you know, something's got to change. Here's a 14-year-old neat kid you know, and they began to realize, hey, we're stepping on his buttons as parents. And no wonder he is bitter, rebellious. Begin to realize this whole thing flows together. Because when I begin to realize this, you see, we cross the sin line. I, I do it like this. In fact, I do a sheet just like this. In fact, I probably do about six of these a week with each couple. You know, they do their own, and I keep having the model. And I write sin right down the middle here. I, this is what other people do, this is what you do. And see, with this person I just described, 
I just circled rebellion. And I could, I could mark the trace, the pattern across. Or I could take and do the next one and says, you know what? Tell me where pride comes from. And that's where I, I take them and go back to the pride sheet. And I looked at the pride sheet. I began to say, let's just figure out from the pride sheet what's really going on. You see, the need to take control, and I'm just going to pick up some of these. In John's book, you don't have these numbered. Let me tell you a little history of this sheet. In the first workbook, the blue one, it looks like this. You have one list of 18 things of causes of pride with two columns of lines. You mark it, and your spouse looks over your shoulder and marks what you don't see. That's called blind spots. Well, what happened about three years ago, we have, every year we have a director's meeting. We get together. And Mel Esch came to our director's meeting, and he had taken these because the prayer ends and respond with a proper attitude. He had taken those, and he had marked, he had written out the proper attitude for each one. I said, hey, this is a gold mine. I've been looking at this for two years. So I went back home, and I explained this to my clients, and they said, I'll go type it up for you. So she went to her, back to her motel and typed it up and sent it to me. The next morning I had it here, and it looks like what you see on the second sheet. And um, I sent it to my brother, and he put it in his new book. He called me and says, Ken, do I have permission to put it in my book? I says, I just, I copied out of you and copied out of Mel. You better ask him. I'm just copying. Okay? I love this sheet. Now, there's something on this sheet you don't have. You don't have two sets of lines. And I intentionally didn't put, the, I didn't have room for it, first of all. I intentionally didn't have two sets of lines for this reason. I want you to take response to what's happening inside you. I want to take response to what's happening inside of me. And you know, when a person, and I had this couple sitting in front of me, and I was working on this seat, I said, what I do, this is my approach. Rather than having, I have a mark all they need to do, okay? But you know, they can't change 10 things a day. I basically said, you can probably change at most two things a day, maybe one. This is a process of 18 different days. Let's start with one today. And so I said, would you mark the ones that you need to work on? I had this guy sitting in front of me. He says, you know, I can't think of one of those things. I thought, man, I, there's never been a time I bit my tongue more. I wanted to mark his sheet. I want to get my pen out. I said, I'll mark them for you. I've got half of these things for you. I bit my tongue. I said, I'm not going to mark his sheet. I want God to mark his sheet. I want him to mark his sheet. He finally, after about five minutes, his wife had already marked hers. Finally, he says, well, I have one. I think God has a sense of humor. He marked one, and this is the one he marked, number 17. So I asked him, would you pray number 17? Here's prayer. Lord, I acknowledge, renounce my prayer. My pride is evidence through my focus on my knowledge and experience. I ask your forgiveness and choose to humble myself and respond by being humble about how much I need to learn. I almost thought God had a sense of humor. You know, it's interesting. As soon as he finished praying then, he saw four more. Now, Satan has a foothold. I look at this, I love this sheet because Satan's not omniscient like God is. But he is smart enough with enough angles, he'll get you coming or going somewhere. There are some on this sheet I do not have a problem with. I'm not saying that just being proud. I've gotten plenty of problems, about 10 of them, okay? I look at some of these, I really don't have a problem with some of these things. As soon as I say this, someone marks them. The same ones, I say I don't have a problem with that. That's why I love the, he has all of his angles, and he looks for your angles, and he's going to actually pull you back into a rut by those areas that you have proven in the past that you'll follow him. That you have a problem with depression, the hidden pride, 
or achievement, the open pride. He knows those angles. And I guess I want you to realize the fact, like I shared you my number one, two, and three on here. I have about six or eight. That basically keeps recycling. Every once in a while, another one shows up. And here's the point I want you to see. I see this picture as this. And I use it this way also. I says, you know what? This is the old man. This is the new man. This, this is God shutting down grace. This is God opening up grace. By the way, what do you like to have? Understand what I'm saying? This is how I do it with people. I says, by the way, which do you like? I just take this sheet and just kind of fold it like this. By the way, which do you like? Oh, we love this one. They do that. Okay, well, we've got to solve this one. And see, the point I'm making is this. I want people to say, you know, 98% of the people who've been to my office are Christians. And one even told me, he says, you know what? Uh, he says, I'm a manager and people love working under me. I promote them. They want to work under me because they get good work, pay and everything. He says, I do this all the time. I says, what about your family? <laughs> Let's bring it home. And that's what he needed to do. He saw himself at work like this. He wasn't bringing it home. Now, the point I'm making is the fact that as we walk through this, I begin to realize the fact you can take these needs and realize the fact you can divide. In fact, I took these three needs and I divide them down. These are in your list there. I begin to see how some of these kind of fit together. Now, I don't usually do this with the three needs, but you can just see how this kind of ties with this. Whether you're looking at someone who needs to be noticed or someone who wants to be in control, or someone who basically is trying to be superior. Now, you see, you take that, and you begin to realize the fact that, you know, Lord, I acknowledge my pride. You're refusing to give up personal rights. I confess it, and I humble myself, and I respond by yielding my rights, developing a meek spirit. Or we can take the next one. Lord, I acknowledge that I have shut down grace by my desire to control others. Brothers and sisters, this is a real Christian problem. You just look in the pulpit sometimes. The very people who are preaching about pride from the pulpit are probably doing more modeling this than the purpose controlling people. I was 26 when I finished seminary. I graduated on Friday, and 10 days later, I was installed as a pastor of a church. I went from being in the middle of the pack, struggling to make it through, to now being the top person in a small church in Nebraska. I discovered something. A lot of went to my head. Because I discovered why I wanted to control that, because I wanted everything to do my plans. Because the future of that church depended upon them doing it for my plans. And one day, God at home, he says, what's your whole purpose here? To control the people's behavior for your goals? Or basically, you want them to grow in Jesus so they'll do Sunday school class so they can grow, not so it's about your purposes and plans. And I had to go through that process as a pastor. And um, it wasn't always fun, but I needed it. And I think you see this happening, and I, well, I've had enough clients from different angles. Adventist, Seventh-day Adventist, Amish, Mennonite, uh, Independent Baptist, they all had the same problem. That's control <laughs> for the pastors. I'm saying, if I, I found the same place. It's not just one group. And, um, and I was among those at one time. 
And the point is the fact that, you know, Lord, I confess my desire to control others. I humble myself and surrender my will to you and allow you to build into others and direct others. Or looking at needing me noticed. My concern about what other people think of me. By the way, do you want people to think well of you? Of course you do. You're, you're a child of God, right? You want them to think well of you as a child of God. And the enemy uses that as a foothold to try to get you to fall. Because suddenly one day, it, uh, you can't keep up with it all. And basically, I, I love this, the way Mel Ash wrote this out. I, I still like this one. Um, Lord, I, I, I humble myself and being concerned being real. What matters to me is not what others think, but what God knows, being willing to die to my own reputation. Boy, that really changes the whole picture of it's all about me. Or for example, desire to meet my needs. Do you want other people to meet your needs? Come on. You listen to testimonies, they want their parents to meet their needs, right? All of us have needs and we want people to meet those needs. And one thing I've said to people, you know, I look at this sheet, I says, you know, somebody says, what's wrong with these things? You know, some of these things, there's nothing wrong with them on this side. You want your parents to meet your needs, right? Desire to recognize and appreciate. Do you want people to say thank you to you for what you've done? In fact, the Bible says, in everything give thanks to the will of God and Christ Jesus concerning you. God's command to them is to thank you for what you're doing, right? And for you to thank them for what they're doing. That's part of Christian relationships. But you've been out there knocking yourself out, helping someone. For some reason, they just decide, you know what? I think they're all doing it just be selfish. We're not going to say thank you anymore. And for a year and a half, they don't say one word of appreciation. You're still knocking yourself out ministering to them. And they don't even appreciate anything you've done. And one day he says, you know, enough is enough. If they're going to treat me like that, I'll give them a dose of their medicine back. That's where you cross the line. Now, I know they weren't doing the right thing, but you aren't either now. So suddenly what you thought on the one hand is giving them a dose of medicine is actually both of you being caught by Satan, this foothold thing. That's why I say, you know, Satan takes a legitimate need and turns to obsession. You can look at, you know, the need to be, for example, says hurt feelings others are promoted by I'm overlooked. I don't know anyone at age 20, and I say this, what I'm telling you is what I tell my clients regularly. I don't know anyone at 20 who dreams about having the same job for the next 45 years until they retire. They want to be promoted. They want to become a manager. Moms want to have more children. They want to have grandchildren. It, promotions built into this, right? But you don't get it when you want. Right? And you see, the whole picture is we give Satan a foothold, but when we take those legitimacies, don't take them to the Lord. Instead of focusing on myself, I'm serving others. Instead of people meeting my needs, I'm out there to serve others. Now, as I walk through this, I begin to realize, in fact, I'm just going to keep walking through this. You can go do this yourself. Um, Let me finish this one. All 
I have a couple ideas. In fact, these ideas are still in my head. Nothing's on paper yet. I've told families, I says, you know what? In fact, I, ha- I put these cards together. I don't have approval from the home office to start doing it because I've got to get all copy. It's all copywritten. So one of my goals is to put out a bunch of flash cards and flip cards. The prayer of the day for your family. And so you sit your children down, okay, as family, parents. Today we're going to work on number, um, number four. Today, Lord, we're going to acknowledge or announce our pride as evidence through our blaming others for failures. We're not going to sit around blaming each other. We're going to ask your forgiveness and choose to humble ourselves and respond by accepting personal responsibility what we did and having a forgiving attitude toward people who do things around us that are bad. And, you know, my idea is the fact this. In fact, I, I have an idea. In fact, it hit me about two weeks ago. I have time. If you like doing this, I'd love to team up with you and attack John's office. We've got a plan. I'd love to put together a booklet of 18 character-building stories that you could sit down with your children and you could have the negative and the positive. And you could read it to your children because this is as simple as a child learning how to care about others rather than themselves, Right? You can teach a child to walk humbly with God. You don't have to wait till they're adults. You can teach them to forgive even though they're hurt. I tell you, I'm indebted to my wife because she learned some things. I don't know where she learned them, but she did some things as a mom that I'm just indebted because, you know, when our first daughter, when she went to kindergarten, she was an outcast because I came as a pastor in a community where... um, People left the big church to come and become part of this church. And we thought, you know, well, I'll handle that one. It's working all right. But when our daughter hit school, suddenly she got the brunt of that as a kindergartner. Now, it wasn't the kindergartners knew that. It was the parents. She wasn't invited to birthday parties. She was excluded. She wasn't allowed. They were told not to play with her, you know. We experienced this in a community of, you know, civilized people, right? My wife taught my daughter, our daughter, how to forgive how to love people even though they mistreated her and you know, ignored her. She led a, one friend to the Lord when she was in first grade. Later on, this girl invited her to a birthday party among that group. Now, the point I'm making is the fact that, you know, Christian growth doesn't start when you're 18, 20. It starts with children. We talk about the damage. Why not talk about the growth at those steps of godliness? What I love when I talk to families is I says, you know, let's go back. And you go back to your families and you apply this. It's not just for mom and dad. They see you doing it. Now you're going to say, just a minute, you need to care about the others. Half of these things on this side are caring about another person. If you look through it, just scan over it. Half are different attitudes around something. Serving them, honoring them, promoting them, lifting them up. About a fourth are different attitude toward God. He's in control, you're not. You know, he has a way that you don't understand. Let him have you in control. And, and about a fourth about you, different attitude toward yourself. Oh, I love this one here. Number, number, um, fifth, number 16. I, none of you have this problem. Lord, I acknowledge or renounce my pride as evidence for my feeling sorry for myself because I'm not appreciated. You don't have that problem, do you? You know, I call that my pity pile. And my pity pile is a big dirt pile in Fresno, California. Now you say, why is it in Fresno? That's where we were. Our kids were between 5 and 11. Someone told us, you need a swimming pool. It's nice. It's, you know, you can swim out there for six, eight, eight months, nine months, a year outside. You need a swimming pool. I should have never listened to them. 
I should have paid for season passes to drive two miles. They could have swum all they wanted to. The two years with, they never did swim in the pool. But I had this dirt pile to work on trying to make the swimming pool work. It was 105 degree temperature and I was trying to move this dirt all day long on a Saturday. I remember the sun had gone down and I was sitting on that pile. I hadn't got it done. I was out of energy and the dirt pile was still there. That's my pity pile. Now, I didn't expect my wife to be a dirt mover. She had other jobs to do. My kids were not dirt movers. So why was I feeling sorry for myself? I guess I expected the neighbors to all show up that day. They knew Dale needed help, so they should all be. But they put fences around the house. Nobody knew I was back there. Understand? Nobody even knew I was there. But they should have known I was behind that fence needing help. That's how crazy it gets, right? I was a pastor of church. I just began. They should have known Dale had that. They should have all known. They'd come, and if I asked, they would come. But I wasn't going to ask this. They should have been known that. They should have known that I needed help that day. See how crazy this pity pile is? You know what I'm saying? And the enemy loves us feeling sorry for ourselves. And I, you know, I discovered that's one of my cracks, or you want to call them footholds, that the enemy uses whenever I start feeling sorry for myself. It's just a minute, God. I'm going to trust you for my approval. I'm going to trust you for my help. I'm going to trust you for what I need. It's not depending on other people. I'm going to trust you for that. You know? Now, in fact, what I ask people to do is I ask them to take this and, and mark the ones on your list. And you can do it at home. Just, just mark through the list. And then I say, you know, you can only change one thing a day. Take one of them, for example. Let's say, for example, 16 was the one that, for this day. Lord, every time I'm tempted to feel sorry for myself, I'm going to look to you for my approval. I'm not going to get my approval from people's rejection or they're not noticing me. I'm going to find your approval all day long. You know what? If you do that 10 times that day, the enemy has lost five chances or 10 chances to get into your heart. Or, for example, another day you come to another one. Lord, acknowledge my... And my pride is evidence through, number four, blaming others for their failures. Have people put potholes in your world and you have a flat tire because of it? Man, talk about a messed up world. God, I'm, gonna, I'm not letting Satan get any more foothold from that one. I'm going to take responsibility for what I do wrong. And I'm going to forgive the people what they do wrong. And I'm going to let them stop me. Now, if all day long you're focusing on that, and the city, Satan cannot get a foothold. By the way, are you growing any that day? Are you growing? And it's interesting. I, I love this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. How do you break down strongholds? You break down strongholds by every act of obedience. Every time you say no to yourself and yes to God, no to your selfishness and let God, you're actually breaking another brick of that stronghold and the enemy knows that he's losing. That's why when I come to the last part, I acknowledge that there's a place for praying through these prayers like this. This is the prayer dealing with uh, pride. The next one deals with rebellion. But here's the point I want you to see. To conclude, we can teach people. I, I think there's a place to break the footholds. Sometimes when they pray through this for the first time that they choose to submit rather than rebel, a foothold is broken. They, they break loose, okay? I, I believe that prayer breaks loose. But that break loose 
will only last for two weeks, four weeks, probably not much longer than six weeks. If they don't replace it with obedient actions. In fact, on Sunday, we had the privilege of spending time with a pastor on the way down here. And he, he does this kind of counseling in his church. In fact, he overflows. I do all of his TJ tests for him because he can't do them, so I do it for him. He mails them to me, I do it. And I went to his, I went to his church, and he, he has couples he doesn't understand how to work. He sends them down to me, or to John, whichever we get in first. Usually it gets me first because it can't get into John there. So, and In fact, on Sunday we're in his church, and they said, how many have gone to Regeer for counseling? A whole bunch of people stood up between John and myself, and, and the pastor has done that too. Interesting, he said this the afternoon, his heart was aching. He says, you know what, he says, there are so many people, they come back all excited, and two weeks later it's all fizzled out. And I ask myself the question since Sunday, why? That, that, that breaks my heart. The enemy is just waiting for it to wear off, and he'll get us right back on the old rut. I can pray this time and time and time and time again. It won't make one bit of difference until I have action that goes with it. And that's why I say it's not just teaching to pray this. That's important to break that. I, I, I'm not discounting the prayer. But I, I love what, what um, Mel Esch included in the positive side. What's the positive attitude? Specific, do this. Rather than just leave it open and, well, do something good. You know what I'm saying? Do this instead of this. And here's the point I'm making as I conclude. God, help me not just to pray that prayer, but every time today, my interaction with my spouse, my interaction with my children, my interaction with people at work, my interaction with people at church, my interaction with the community, I'm going to choose to give that proper attitude. They'll see what it means for me to be walking humbly before God. Do you hear what I'm saying? And you know, if you take those 18... And for the next 18 days, you take one a day. I, I'm just naive enough to believe this, okay? Or I believe God's going to plan your day around those things. You understand what I'm saying? He'll give you enough opportunities to apply. He says, you know what? I'm going to give you a chance to find out how it works. And you'll discover your attitude and your obedience. Oh, here's my chance right here with my daughter. Here's my son. Here's this person who just called. Here's this person at church. Here's this person who just tried to sell me something. You'll see right away, it just, how many times it opened up. I would challenge you to write down all the chances you had that day and see how many happened. I think it's going to be more than just two or three. And here's my suggestion. After 18, go back and start another 18. The same 18 all over again. After those 18, do another you know how many times you're going to do it one year? You're going to cycle 20 times in one year through this. By the way, when you think in terms of Satan and his strategy for you to get footholds, what do you think he feels like after about a year of that? What do you think he's going to feel like? <laughs> this is too much work. I can't get a foothold. Because every time you're making a decision, you're making one step of growing in maturity. Now, I'm not here trying to say work salvation. I'm talking about growing in Jesus, becoming more like Jesus. That's what that right side is, growing in Jesus. And really caring about people. And not let sitting get cut on this side. 
I conclude by just simply saying, we're a needy people. We hurt. And the enemy wants to take advantage of those hurts. And you know, you struggle one day, you don't work through the issue. You take it to bed. All night long, you may toss or you may sleep. You wake up the next morning, something has triggered. And you'll probably catch yourself one of these 18. My suggestion is, start the day out with a 15-second prayer. That's about as long as it takes. What I'd like to have you do right now we have one minute. I want you to take that sheet, and I want you to look at one thing on there. Your thing, okay? Okay, just, just look at one thing. I know this is going to sound like, this is going to sound like one of those church services where everybody's praying different things at one time. That's all right. Okay? I want you to take one thing. We're going to pray this out loud. Okay? I want you to pinpoint the one that the Lord is telling you. That's the foothold I want you to work on and not let Satan have. Do you find it there on that sheet? Does everybody have a sheet? <laughs> Where'd my sheets go? Hmm. There's a whole bunch someplace. Are they here? They were handing them out and then left them. Like... I do this very thing when I, before a couple even leaves or before they even begin the forgiveness prayer for whatever, you know, the new struggle they're going to have. Lord, would you take this foothold away and so Jesus can have some victory? You got yours picked? Okay. You, can have to, you don't have to speak as loud as I do, okay? But I'm going to speak loud enough, but I don't want to overshadow yours, okay? But we're all going to pray this to prayer. When we get to that line, I'm going to give you a chance to spell out yours verbally, okay? And I'll spell mine verbally, okay? I'm sorry, the prayer's on the back page, okay? All together. Lord, I acknowledge and renounce my pride as evidence through my, say it, becoming defensive. Come on, you've got to say it, okay? Becoming defensive and criticized. I ask your forgiveness and choose to humble myself and respond by receiving criticism with a humble, open spirit. Now that prayer took about 15 seconds, didn't it? And you know what? For the rest of the day, you can actually kind of build on that. This has really helped me to realize what does it mean to walk humbly with God? I say this. I've got to add this one thing. We do the TJ test, you know, dominance and submissive. I discover I'm on the submissive side, okay? We are on the submissive side, have a hard time with humility. We already feel like we're walked on. Now you're asking me to, I said, I've, I've actually prayed, Lord, I'm already laying on the floor. Do you want me to get under the floor? And the Lord really gave me a good kick in the seat one day when I was reading my Bible. I read Hebrews chapter 12. You haven't even shed any blood yet. Get on your feet and start walking. 
That's when I was feeling sorry for myself. And I discovered, you know, a person who is high in dominance, this is different than a person who is low in dominance. And I say, you know what? most amazing testimony is someone who's low and dominant, humbly walking with God and just serving God. It's the most amazing testimony I've seen. I've seen the other side too. But since I'm down here, I notice those. Thanks for your attention. God bless you.